You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Kenneth O'Brien. Past three on Saturday, the 16th of January 2016, a man and his partner were out walking along the Grand Canal at Art Clock, County Kildare, when they noticed a dark grey wheelie suitcase floating on the surface of the canal about two metres from the water's edge. The suitcase had red ribbons attached to it and looked relatively new, which struck the couple as unusual. The man used a stick from a nearby hedgerow to pull the case towards him before retrieving it from the water to see what was inside. Upon opening it, they made the grisly discovery of what appeared to be a plastic bag with red liquid in it, along with some human skin. The man immediately phoned Gardy and told the emergency operator, quote, I think we found a body. Officers from the nearby Leakslip station attended the scene and determined that the bag contained the torso of a large-framed Caucasian man. They commenced a full murder investigation, bringing in the Garda Technical Bureau and the Subaqua team to comb the canal and its surrounds in an effort to uncover any forensic evidence or any further human remains. There was initial concern that the body could be that of 39-year-old Wicklow man Barry Corcoran, who had disappeared under suspicious circumstances six months before. However, a preliminary examination conducted on site by Deputy State Pathologist Dr Michael Curtis found that the victim had died in recent hours or days. This ruled out the possibility of it being Corcoran, who was believed to have been killed soon after his disappearance the previous July. The waterway where the suitcase was found was banked by a popular walkway, stretching five kilometres between Ardclock Bridge and Kearneystown Bridge. Based on local eyewitness accounts, the suitcase was present in the water at 9am on the day that it was discovered. However, the pathologist's preliminary examination put the time of death sometime within the previous three days, so it was thought it was possible that the suitcase could have lain there a day or two before being discovered. Superintendent Jerry Wall of Leakslip Garda Station, who was leading the murder investigation, made a public appeal for any pedestrians or cyclists who had travelled along the walkway in the last few days to make contact. The following afternoon, on Sunday the 17th of January, the partial remains were taken to NACE General Hospital so that a full post-mortem could be carried out. This confirmed that the man had not been stabbed or shot in the torso, and in the absence of further remains, Dr. Curtis was unable to determine a cause of death. The suitcase and plastic were also taken for forensic testing to see if any fingerprints or DNA evidence might provide a link to the victim or killer. Gardy set about trying to establish the identity of the victim and where the murder occurred. A review of recent missing persons reports brought up no immediate leads and without the victim's head, hands or feet, investigators had no dental records or fingerprints to go off. Given the particularly brutal nature of the dismemberment, it was thought that machinery or power tools could have been used and so three days after the discovery of the torso, the inquiry team made a fresh appeal, asking business owners who may have been away from commercial properties over that weekend to check for any signs of unusual activity or evidence that a cleanup might have taken place. It was stressed that this appeal was not just for local businesses in Kildare, but for the wider community in neighbouring counties. This wider appeal was due to the fact that Art Clock sits on the Kildare-Dublin border, and investigators suspected that the killing may have occurred in Dublin before the body was transported to Kildare and dumped in the canal. Because of this, the investigation team in the Kildare Division was liaising closely with colleagues in western and southern Dublin. Although Art Clock is a quiet and remote area, it has a history of being used as a dumping ground by crime gangs based in the nearby capital. 
Cormac O'Keefe, writing for the Examiner, pointed out that back in the year 2000, two young Dublin men named Darren Carey and Patrick Murray had been shot and killed over a drug debt and was dumped just five kilometres up the canal. A breakthrough came for Gardaí on the afternoon of the 19th of January, when DNA swabs that were taken from the mother of a person who had been reported missing on January the 16th came back with an exact match. The dead man was identified as Kenneth O'Brien, a 33-year-old father of one who was originally from Ballyfermot, Dublin. O'Brien was described as being a respectable family man who was six foot two in height with a stocky build and a beard. According to Andrew Phelan reporting for the Irish Independent, Kenneth was a JCB driver and a diesel fitter who had moved to Australia in 2013 so that he could earn more money and send it back to his partner of 15 years, Emer Dunn, who stayed behind in Ireland with their young son. In the intervening years, he travelled back to Ireland for occasions like his son's birthday and Christmas. But in December of 2015, one month before his brutal murder, he had returned from Perth for good, settling into a house in Clondalkin with his partner and four-year-old child. On the morning of the 15th of January 2016, Emer Dunn said that she and her son had kissed Kenneth goodbye before she dropped the little boy to her mother's and went to work. Ken reminded her that he had some work on in Limerick that day and would be home late. The couple exchanged text messages throughout the morning with O'Brien inquiring whether Emer had arrived at work okay given the cold and icy road conditions. However, he stopped responding at about half past one and when Emer tried to ring him, his phone was off, which she found odd. She heard nothing more until the early hours of Saturday morning when at half three, she received a text message from an unknown number purporting to be from O'Brien, saying he had lost his phone and would be staying overnight in a hotel. Then, at 7.49am, she received another message from the same number that read, quote, So here it is. I'm heading for the ferry today. I can't handle being at home and I want out. You care more about our child and your family. I've met someone else. She came to Ireland yesterday. I met her today. I'm going with her. Emer was immediately suspicious of this message, as the language and tone were totally different from O'Brien's normal texting style. She also noted that their child's name was spelled wrong, and there were no full stops in the message, whereas Kenneth was normally very particular about spelling and punctuation when texting. But when Emer searched the house to see if anything was missing, she realised that Kenneth's passport was gone. Dunn then began to ring around O'Brien's friends, and from that, she learned that the Limerick job had been called off on the Thursday evening. At around midday, she spoke to a close friend of O'Brien's, a man by the name of Paul Wells Sr. Wells explained to Emer that O'Brien had met someone else in Australia and that they had been together for a while before he returned to Ireland. Later that afternoon, Wells showed her photographs and text messages between O'Brien and the woman, including a number of intimate pictures. He then told her that if she was going to report O'Brien missing, that she shouldn't mention his name to the police. After this, Emer spoke to Kenneth's family, and that evening, the 33-year-old was reported missing by his aunt. Gardee gave a press briefing following the identification of the torso. Superintendent Wall described O'Brien as a family man, saying there was no indication as to why he had fallen victim to this particularly gruesome crime. There was nothing to suggest that he had been in fear of his life. He was just a normal man, going about his business and trying to get some work. Detectives began inquiries into Kenneth O'Brien's movements, dating back to when he had returned from Australia, to determine if he might have been involved in any incident that could be linked to his death. They examined his mobile phone and computer activity, and on January the 21st, it emerged that, although O'Brien didn't know that his life was under threat, he had in fact received some threatening text messages in the lead-up to his death. A Garda spokesperson said that at that early stage they were not following a definite line of inquiry, but O'Brien had no known connection with crime, so they were looking into the possibility that he was targeted because of events in his private life, rather than gangland activity. Investigators were also liaising with police in Australia to determine if anything had happened during his time in Perth that could have led to his murder. 
A search conducted at O'Brien's house on Leland Road, Clondalkin, gave investigators little to go on, and they struggled to account for his movements during the 24-hour period from when he was last seen alive to the discovery of his remains in the Grand Canal. His partner, Emer, had taken O'Brien's car to travel to work that morning, so officers were looking into the possibility that he was collected by someone who had gone on to murder him. If this was the case, then it would suggest that O'Brien had known his killer. As the investigation intensified, new lines of inquiry opened up, including a theory that O'Brien may have had a brief fling with a woman who was known to be friendly with a feared West Dublin criminal. Another lead that officers were looking into was the possibility that Kenneth had become involved in business or financial dealings with a West Dublin crime gang that went sour. On Saturday the 23rd of January, one week to the day after Kenneth O'Brien's mutilated remains were found, Ken Foy reported in the Evening Herald that the murder was now being considered a gang hit by Gardee. The theory was that O'Brien had been persuaded by a notorious crime gang to hand over cash sums on the promise of a return on his investment. This was supported by the fact that the victim had been seen in the Ard Clock area a number of times in the lead-up to his vicious killing. One source close to the investigation was reported as saying, quote, This may have worked out once or twice before, but something went wrong along the way. Kenneth was not a gangster. He wasn't into drugs or violence, but he was taken advantage of by people who grew up around him and knew he was making money in Australia. There was speculation that somehow this arrangement had fallen through, and when O'Brien decided to stay in Ireland after returning home for Christmas, the gang planned and carried out his murder. Gardy believed that finding the location of the killing was key to their investigation, and so they continued their extensive, painstaking search across several sites along the Grand Canal. They also carried out a number of checkpoints throughout Art Clock in a bid to uncover any new leads or reports of unusual activity in the area. Then, on Sunday the 24th of January, eight days after O'Brien's partial remains were found in the suitcase, there was a significant boost for the investigators when members of the Garda underwater unit recovered a bag containing human limbs in the water a few hundred metres upstream from Salins town, some ten kilometres away from Art Clock. The following day, two more bags were discovered in the same area, one of which contained O'Brien's severed head. All three bags, which were weighed down with bricks, were removed from the water and taken for forensic examination. In addition to the remains, divers also recovered pieces of a power tool 14 kilometres away in the Royal Canal, near Carton House in Maynooth, North Kildare. Although the equipment did not include a saw or a blade, it was described as being a component part of a device which may have been used in the dismemberment of O'Brien's body. Following an examination of the body parts by the deputy state pathologist, O'Brien's cause of death was found to be a gunshot wound to the head. There were no other serious wounds found on his body, nor was there any indication that he had been held against his will for any period of time. The daily twists that the bizarre case was taking gripped the public, and as Superintendent Wall continued to appeal for anyone with information to come forward, the public response was huge. By this time, Gardie were following over 300 lines of inquiry, and though they now focused heavily on the West Dublin heroin-dealing gang believed to be connected to O'Brien, Gardie stressed that this wasn't their only avenue of investigation. Two weeks after O'Brien's body was found, two officers travelled to Australia to delve further into Kenneth's background there, in an attempt to pin down a possible motive for the murder. The working theory was that if he had previous contact with criminals, he may have been under threat while working in Australia. They hoped that by tracking his activities in Perth and interviewing the people he was in regular contact with, they might be able to build a clearer picture and establish whether or not he was under threat during that time. However, his colleagues in Australia refuted this, describing O'Brien as a hard worker who lived for his family and who wasn't in trouble with anyone. Meanwhile, back at the investigative headquarters in Leakslip, a team of more than 80 officers continued to work around the clock to find the location of the gruesome murder scene. 
O'Brien's mobile phone, computer and bank records were also being analysed for anything that might shed more light on the motive for his killing. In the course of these inquiries, investigators found that O'Brien had transferred over €52,000 into the personal account of his friend, Paul Wells Sr., in the 18-month period prior to his death. Wells was known to Gardy and was believed to have worked as an enforcer or hired muscle for a number of criminal factions. This strengthened the theory that O'Brien was handing over cash sums to fund drug-dealing activities under the promise of a return on his investment. On February the 3rd, more than 300 mourners gathered as Kenneth O'Brien was laid to rest. He was described fondly as a strikingly big and handsome man who could be a bit of a prankster. His family thanked the public for the outpouring of support and comfort over the past three weeks, saying they were grateful to be in a position to put their son to rest peacefully. A photograph of O'Brien's son sitting on his dad's digger was brought to the altar, and a floral bouquet in the shape of a digger was also laid out in his honour, along with family pictures and other tributes. Many mourners became overwhelmed when Kenneth's four-year-old son cried out Dada as his remains were removed from the church to be transported to Newlands Cross Cemetery for burial. Finally, on February the 5th of 2016, there was a break in the case when a man presented himself at Leakslip Garda Station and made a voluntary statement, saying that he had disposed of a steel chainsaw as well as its chain and blade across two locations in Kildare on January the 19th and 20th. His name was Paul Wells Jr., the 30-year-old son of the man who had received large cash transfers from Kenneth O'Brien and who had told Emer Dunn about O'Brien's infidelity. The next day, Wells Jr. was arrested in connection with the murder, with officers also raiding his father's house and arresting Wells Sr., Over the next few days, Wells Jr. sat through 14 interviews where he told Gardy that he was giving a voluntary statement because he, quote, couldn't take it in his head and that his father was, quote, physical and fearful. He described Wells Sr. as a monster who would go to great lengths to protect himself and said that his family were, quote, stuck in the middle because of one psychotic animal. Wells Jr. said that on the evening of January the 16th, the day after O'Brien was last seen alive, he met Wells Sr. in the car park of Tesco in Selbridge. They went for a drive and as they travelled towards Straffan Village, he said that Wells Sr. was so on edge that he worried his father might shoot him. They pulled up at the canal on the Salins Road and Wells Sr. got out saying he needed a piss. He went to the boot of the car and after some shuffling about, Wells Jr. said that his father threw several bags into the water. Wells Jr. then said that he himself had thrown the chainsaw motor into the Royal Canal at Carton House, claiming that he didn't know it had been used to dismember Kenneth's body at the time. The following day, he also disposed of the chainsaw blade and the chain in the cura. He asserted that he had helped to get rid of the chainsaw out of fear and believed that his father would shoot him if he had contacted the authorities sooner. Wells Jr. also described for Gardy how he had travelled to Latvia for his stag party on January the 22nd, and said that while on a night out, his father had imitated the motions of a chainsaw. Wells Jr. asked him if he had murdered O'Brien, and Wells Sr. had smirked in response, saying he was left with no choice. When Gardy asked if he knew what his father's motive for the brutal killing was, there was no mention of the speculated gangland links. Wells Jr. told Gardy that his father claimed O'Brien had been pressuring him to kill his partner, Emer Dunn. On the day of Kenneth's murder, Wells Sr. alleged that they had gotten into an argument, and when O'Brien pulled out a gun, Wells Sr. had taken it off him and had shot him in the head. Well, Sr. said he'd then panicked because he couldn't move the body, so he came up with the plan to use the chainsaw. According to an article published in the Irish Sun, when Wells Jr. was asked if he knew anything about the €52,000 that O'Brien had transferred to his father, he said, quote, I believe my father spent the money. He's a sick individual. I couldn't think why he would kill him. 
I can nearly guarantee that Ken wanted his money back. That's why this happened. It's always money with my dad. Money and Garda informants. That's all he ever talked about. Paul Wells Sr. was a short, rotund father of five with a violent criminal history, having negotiated Dublin's underworld by ingratiating himself with the IRA and organised crime gangs. According to John Mooney's biography of him in the Times UK, Wells had trained as a butcher and also bred miniature pedigree rabbits. He was considered a suspect in the murder of Desi Fox, a bookmaker who was ambushed on his way to a race meeting at the Curra in 1990. Fox's attackers shot him dead before escaping with a briefcase containing a large quantity of cash. In 1996, Wells served a seven-year sentence for possession of firearms, and following his release from Portleash Prison, he fell in with dissident Republicans and joined Ogley Naharan, an IRA splinter group. He became the organisation's commanding officer for Dublin, a role which put him firmly into the sights of the Gardaí, the PSNI and MI5. Wells was said to be part of a network of dissidents who plotted to mount an attack on London in the run-up to the 2012 Olympics. However, he was distrusted by many Republicans and eventually drifted away from the group after being accused of passing information on to the special branch. When questioned by Gardaí about the murder of Kenneth O'Brien, 48-year-old Wells Sr. initially denied any involvement, saying he had last seen Kenneth on the 11th of January when he had dropped into his house on Leland Road for a coffee. When he learned that Ken had gone missing a few days later, he said his first instinct was that his friend of 10 years had, quote, done a runner. Wells Sr. painted Kenneth O'Brien to be a secretive man with a roving eye, telling investigators that his partner Emer had caught him cheating in the past. When asked if O'Brien had any enemies, Wells Sr. said that Kenneth could be volatile with drink and would have run-ins. He also said that the people Kenneth worked for in Australia were involved with biker gangs and drugs. Wells Sr. continued to protest his innocence over the course of two interviews with Gardaí. However, when confronted with the statements made by his son, he began to talk. Repeating the story that Wells Jr. had relayed to investigators, Wells Sr. claimed that O'Brien had offered him €20,000 to assassinate Emer Dunn so that he could return to Australia with their little boy. Sr. said that he had refused to carry out the hit and told Gardy he withdrew the money O'Brien had transferred to him and gave it back as cash, but that O'Brien still continued to pester him about assassinating his partner. And so it was according to Wells Sr. that on the 15th of January 2016, Kenneth had arrived at his house in Barnamore Park, Finglas, to give him a gun to use for the assassination. An argument ensued in the back garden and Wells Sr. insisted that he had shot O'Brien in self-defence using that same gun. Speaking in disjointed sentences, Wells Sr. told Gardy that immediately after the shooting, he'd collapsed and lost track of time. When he came round, he began to panic that his son would be home soon, so he went to the shed to retrieve an orange chainsaw that Kenneth O'Brien had loaned him about 18 months before. Wells Sr. explained that he had removed all of O'Brien's clothing before rolling and dragging his body to the other end of the garden, positioning him close enough to the wall so that nobody outside could see him. He said it had taken him 20 minutes to start up the chainsaw. At this stage in the interview, Wells Sr. broke down, sobbing, quote, My friend, a human being. He told Gardy that he had dismembered O'Brien on the ground and then changed his clothes before going back into the shed. There he put the legs, arms and head into plastic bags. He said he had forgotten to put O'Brien's hands into the bag after accidentally leaving them on a shelf in the shed. He wrapped the torso in plastic, placing it behind his bins to conceal it, before later putting it into a suitcase. Wells Sr. claimed he had thought about burying O'Brien's body, but as he didn't have a pick or a shovel, he disposed of the remains in the Grand Canal instead. Wells Sr. outlined to Gardy how, the following morning, he went to his local supermarket and bought two five-litre bottles of bleach, a bottle of detergent and a roll of black plastic bin bags, paying for them with a 20-euro note. Later, Gardy would collect CCTV footage from that shop, which showed Senior calmly going about his business like any other customer. 
Wells Sr. had then gone back to his home, to a scene which he described as carnage to Gardy, and proceeded to attempt to clean up the mess he had created. On Friday the 12th of February 2016, Paul Wells Sr. was remanded in custody for the murder of Kenneth O'Brien. When charged, he told Gardy, quote, I am responsible for killing Kenneth. He appeared before Judge Anthony Halpin at a sitting of Dublin District Court, dressed in a blue hoodie, black trousers and white runners. Emer Dunn was present for the hearing, watching from the public gallery as well Senior sat with his arms folded. Legal aid was granted after a statement of means was produced by defence solicitor Kieran Conway. It would be some time before a trial in connection to the murder of Kenneth O'Brien would be held, however. Over the next few months, Paul Wells Sr. appeared in court a number of times while awaiting the completion of the Book of Evidence. The delay was such that in May of 2016, Judge Blake informed the state that it was his hope to see progress sooner rather than later. The judge was informed that the case file, consisting of 13 volumes of evidence and testimony, had been sent to the DPP that morning. Then, with a trial date set for February 2018, a further delay occurred when Wells Sr.'s legal team made an application for adjournment. According to Senior Counsel Michael O'Higgins, appearing for Mr. Wells Sr., this was a case of particular complexity and involved a so-called complicated backstory. There were also outstanding inquiries and investigation needed in relation to Kenneth O'Brien's time in Australia, which the defence needed time to complete. Mr O'Higgins was also concerned that the proceedings themselves might be quite lengthy and asked that a new date be set that would ensure that the trial would not be interrupted by end-of-term court breaks. The defence's application for an adjournment was granted and a new trial date was set for early October 2018. On October 8th, 2018, a jury was sworn in before Mr Justice Michael White in the Central Criminal Court. Paul Wells Sr. pleaded not guilty to the murder of Kenneth O'Brien on or around January 15th of 2016. He did admit to shooting Mr. O'Brien, but claimed that he had acted in self-defence. The judge warned the 12 jurors that the case was expected to last at least six weeks, which would take them into the start of December at the earliest. He gave them the addresses of the accused and said that any juror who knew him or the victim should not serve. The trial opened at the Central Criminal Court on Wednesday the 10th of October 2018. In his opening statement, Sean Galland, senior counsel for the state, laid out the particulars of Kenneth O'Brien's murder to the jury. He detailed Kenneth's known movements on the day he was killed and how Emer Dunn had become suspicious when she received questionable text messages from someone claiming to be her partner. The prosecutor told the jury, quote, You'll be satisfied on the evidence that those texts did not emanate from Kenneth O'Brien. Mr. Golan went on to describe how Ms. Dunn had contacted the accused, who told her that Kenneth was having an affair and showed her some texts and photos relating to this other woman. Turning to the circumstances of the recovery of the remains in the Grand Canal in Kildare, Mr. Golan told the jury how DNA samples taken from the torso had confirmed the identity of the then-missing Kenneth O'Brien. Mr. Golan told the jurors that the cause of death was found to be a gunshot wound to the head, and that amputation occurred in a manner consistent with the use of a high-speed mechanical saw. Quote, the prosecution case is that Kenneth O'Brien was killed at an address in Finglas by Paul Wells Sr., shot, murdered there, his body dismembered there. Mr. Galan also informed the jury that the investigation had uncovered that Mr. O'Brien had been sending money from Australia into the accused's bank account. Natasha Reed, reporting for the Irish Mirror, wrote that the two walkers who had found O'Brien's torso were the first civilians to give evidence in the trial. The man testified that the suitcase he had found was heavy and that his girlfriend had to hold on to him while he retrieved it from the canal. He said that he had called Gardy to tell them he had found a body, but the Garda who he'd spoken to wasn't initially inclined to put much stock in his suspicions. That was until his girlfriend had pulled back the plastic a little further to check the suitcase's contents. 
He told the jury, quote, I also saw what appeared to be skin with hair on it. The witness recalled that he'd then confirmed to the Garda that they had found a bag with human remains. That day, the court also heard that Gardi conducted a preliminary investigation and verified that the remains were that of a human torso. The witnesses who discovered O'Brien's skull and limbs in the subsequent week also testified, as did the dog walker who had discovered the components of the chainsaw in the Royal Canal, and the Garda who found the chainsaw blade and chain in the Curra. The jury were shown the three parts of the chainsaw, along with photographs of the remains. On the second day of the trial, a Virgin Media installer who was carrying out work at O'Brien's home on the day he disappeared gave evidence. He said that he'd arrived at the house on Leland Road at about 10am on the 15th of January, and that O'Brien had been in good form. He was the only person in the house and nobody else called during the hour that he was there. When asked if O'Brien had spoken to anyone on the phone, the witness said that he'd recalled a couple of text messages being sent and received, but he didn't remember seeing Kenneth speaking on the phone. CCTV footage was then shown to the jury, with Garda Shona Nolan talking them through the footage. It depicted Wells Sr. driving in the direction of Ardclough at about 6am on the morning of Saturday the 16th of January 2016. After a break for lunch, Detective Sergeant Thomas Power of the Garda Ballistics Section testified that he had attended the scene where three bags containing O'Brien's head, arms and a leg were found. Another bag that had been recovered in searches the day before had contained the other leg. The bags were heavy cloth shopping bags tied at the handles and each also contained a red brick. Detective Sergeant Power said that he'd also attended the autopsy on the remains, where he was handed a discharged bullet that had been removed from the head. On examination, the detective sergeant said that he determined the bullet to be a 38 or 357 caliber bullet. He went on to say, quote, To date, the firearm has not been recovered, but I can estimate the type of firearm, a semi-automatic pistol. On Friday the 12th of October, Emer Dunn, Kenneth's partner, took to the stand. She recalled the events of January the 15th and how she had thought it odd that Kenneth had stopped responding to her messages that afternoon. She told the jury that she had then received messages in the early hours of January the 16th, purporting to be from Kenneth, saying that he was running away with another woman. When told by the accused that Kenneth had been having an affair, Dunn said that she was, quote, up the walls and that she collapsed. Later, she said Wells showed her intimate photos of O'Brien and another woman, which made her feel weak. Michael O'Higgins, for the defence, began his cross-examination by telling Ms Dunn that he would have to ask her some personal questions. He also explained that his client was asserting that Mr O'Brien was pressuring the accused to kill her so that he could take their child back to Australia. Ms. Dunn agreed with O'Higgins' assertion that Kenneth O'Brien was a secretive man who had had affairs in the past. She said she hadn't known that he was earning the equivalent of €60,000 after tax in Australia until his death. When asked if Kenneth had been mean with money, Ms. Dunn replied simply that Kenneth was cautious. Next, Mr. O'Higgins read from a statement given by O'Brien's best friend, who said he had once walked into the couple's garden shed and had seen a number of pipe bombs on the table, which Kenneth had tried to conceal. To this, Ms. Dunn responded that she didn't know anything about that. Defence counsel also asked Emer if she was aware that, despite telling the family that he was back in Ireland for good, O'Brien had told his employer in Australia that he would be returning in January. Dunn responded that that would be typical of Kenneth. O'Higgins asked her, quote, Might that tend to suggest there are very significant aspects of Kenneth that you don't know about? Emer replied, quote, Probably, yeah. The defence's line of questioning then delved further into details of the witness's relationship with Kenneth O'Brien. Mr O'Higgins asked Miss Dunn about an affair that O'Brien had had a few years before his death. Ms. Dunn confirmed that she had been aware of the affair and had found out when the woman had been with Kenneth when he was involved in a car accident. 
As a result, Ms Dunn admitted that she had gotten someone to hack into O'Brien's email, and it was clear from the messages she uncovered that something was going on with this woman. Emer went on to acknowledge that she had confronted the woman in question on a number of occasions, and she testified that this had caused bad blood with another man who eventually came to the house and confronted Kenneth O'Brien. Mr. O'Higgins put it to Emer Dunn that this was why Mr. O'Brien had initially come into contact with Wells Sr., because O'Brien was worried about this less-than-pleasant knock at the door, and the deceased had believed that Wells Sr. was an IRA man who could offer protection. There was another, more unusual fact about the couple's home life that Mr. O'Higgins brought up in his questioning of Kenneth O'Brien's partner next. The barrister asked Miss Dunn about a voice-activated recorder that Kenneth had secretly placed in their home for the purpose of recording her. O'Higgins asked, quote, When did it come about that he was taping your conversations? Ms. Dunn said she didn't know, but that she wasn't really surprised as Kenneth was into gadgets. However, she did accept that it wasn't a common thing to do. Mr. O'Higgins also inquired as to whether Ms. Dunn was aware that Kenneth O'Brien had been carrying on a relationship with a Cork woman while living in Australia between July 2013 and March 2014. Ms. Dunn had answered that she, quote, had a feeling there was something going on. The barrister went on to tell her that the couple had moved in together in November of 2013 and had travelled to Bali together on holiday in March 2014 before breaking up soon afterwards. Ms. Dunn said that Wells Sr. had informed her about the Bali trip when he had called to her house on the 16th of January. When the second week of the trial opened on Monday the 15th of October, Paul Wells Sr.'s younger son Gary gave evidence. Recounting the day that Mr. O'Brien was thought to have been killed, he said that his father had dropped him to work on January the 15th, 2016, and had then told him not to come home that night. Wells Sr. had reiterated this instruction again when they arrived at Gary's workplace, with the accused explaining to Gary that he had a friend coming over that evening. Gary told the court that during the day, his father had also called him to make sure that the witness wouldn't be arriving home that night. When he finally went back home on the morning of the 16th of January, Gary recalled that his father was standing in the back garden, power-hosing the ground. He'd seen two bottles of bleach on the decking and noted that a layer of carpet was missing from the shed floor. The day after this, the 17th, Gary testified that the defendant had given him a bag and asked him to drop it to his brother, Paul Jr.'s house. Gary formed the view from the shape of the bag that there was a chainsaw inside. He said his father also gave him a number of shopping bags filled with rubbish to dispose of. One had a piece of cardboard in it with a red stain. In court on October the 16th, O'Brien's former employer, Declan Porter, gave evidence. He said that Kenneth was a, quote, exceptional worker in every respect, and that he kept in touch with him after he went to Australia in 2013. Porter said that he had asked the deceased for help with a job in Limerick on the 15th of January, and O'Brien had agreed to go. However, he said he'd received a call from Mr. O'Brien on the Thursday evening to say he couldn't come, as he had to look after some other business. That afternoon, evidence was heard regarding money that O'Brien had transferred to the accused over the 18-month period before his death. Finton Byrne, head of risk and chief compliance officer at Currency Fair, told Sean Galan that O'Brien had opened an account with them in 2013, and the last login on the account was January the 12th, 2016. Mr. Byrne detailed 10 transfers from that account to a PTSB account held by Wells Sr. between June 2014 and November 2015. These transactions amounted to a total of €47,925. O'Brien had also transferred money to his own account, his partner's account, and accounts belonging to a number of other family members. The total amount transferred through O'Brien's currency fare account was around €90,000. Next, Yvonne Trainer of PTSB's Crime and Loss Prevention Unit told the jury that €5,000 had been transferred directly from O'Brien's PTSB account to Wells Sr.'s PTSB account in February of 2015. 
She also detailed how Wells had made a number of €5,000 withdrawals in branch from his own account between December 2015 and January 2016, leaving a balance of less than €300 on January 15, 2016. Over the course of the remainder of that week, jurors heard the memos of Wells's first two interviews with Gardee, where he denied any involvement in O'Brien's death and tried to implicate other factors in Kenneth's life for his demise. They were then shown the video of Wells' confession, where he outlined the murder and dismemberment of Kenneth's body in detail to Gardee. After an adjournment for the weekend, on Tuesday, October the 30th, 2016, Deputy State Pathologist Dr. Michael Curtis took to the stand to give evidence. He had carried out a post-mortem on the torso that was found on January 16, 2016, and then further examinations on the nine other body parts found more than a week later, on January 24. Dr. Curtis said that the head had been removed at around the sixth vertebra, and that the neck and limbs were, quote, neatly sawn across, consistent with the use of a power saw. It was his assessment that although the head and limbs were removed neatly, the dismemberment was crude and did not display any anatomical knowledge. The jury heard how the body parts had been wrapped in plastic bags, which were bound with cable ties and then placed inside two Tesco and two Dunn stores bags. These bags were then knotted at the handles and weighted with bricks. One bag contained the arms in four sections, while two of the bags were found to contain the legs, also in four parts, with the feet still attached. The fourth bag contained the head. Kenneth O'Brien's hands were never recovered. Dr. Curtis testified that he had found a bullet entrance wound on the back left of the skull, tracking directly forwards and very slightly downwards. The injury was a contact injury wound, meaning the muzzle of the weapon would have been pressed against the head. The skull bones were shattered and the bullet had remained in the head. Dr. Curtis said that the catastrophic brain injuries as a result of the gunshot would have proved instantaneously fatal. The following day, Detective Garda Cliff Cullen of the Cybercrime Bureau gave evidence relating to a computer seized at Wells Sr.'s house, following his arrest in February of 2016. Detective Cullen said that search terms had been used on the laptop for the keywords Irish Fairies Times from Dublin and Irish Fairies Timetable. These searches occurred at 3.49pm and 4.01pm on January 15, 2016, before the time that the accused alleged he had killed O'Brien. Someone using the Windows profile named Paul also visited the Irish Ferries website at 3.59pm on the same day. Between 3.59 and 4.01pm, the same user had looked up various pages on the site, including UK to France from Ireland and Rosslair to Sherberg. Closing speeches took place at the end of that week on Friday the 2nd of November. Sean Galan summarised the prosecution's case, saying that the evidence presented showed Kenneth O'Brien had been executed efficiently in a premeditated murder by Wells Sr. He had been shot in the back of the head at close range, and the accused's suggestion that it was self-defence did not make sense. Defence counsel Michael O'Higgins countered that the evidence for a premeditated execution didn't add up. He said that O'Brien was a deeply flawed character who had shown a disregard for life. He told jurors that they should acquit Wells if they concluded that he had acted reasonably in self-defence. Mr Higgins said, quote, However aspects of the case might repulse you, you are duty-bound to give the accused a fair trial. There were a number of factors that the defence argued supported Wells's claim that there was a conspiracy to murder Emer Dunn. These included the fact that the CCTV at O'Brien's home had worked until January the 14th. On January the 15th, it wasn't working at all. The access code had been changed, and O'Brien was the only person who could have changed it. Mr Higgins asserted that this was no mere coincidence, but rather evidence that O'Brien had planned something which he wanted to ensure there was no recording of. In the same vein, Defence counsel pointed out that Emer Dunn's planned birthday celebrations on January the 15th had been cancelled because of what the defendant had alleged was a lie, that Kenneth was going to work in Limerick. 
O'Higgins also reminded the jury that O'Brien, who previously had no keys to his own house, had gotten keys cut on January the 14th. One of these was later found by Miss Dunn on a shelf in the house. Another detail that appeared to indicate that the victim had intended to, at the very least, leave his partner and the country was the fact that Kenneth O'Brien's passport had gone missing, seemingly supporting the story that the defendant, well senior, had told. With the closing arguments completed, Mr Justice McDermott delivered his charge to the jury, giving them three verdict options, guilty of murder, guilty of manslaughter, or an outright acquittal. He told them that they must reach a unanimous verdict, adding, quote, The horror that might have been felt at what happened shouldn't necessarily determine the guilt or innocence of Mr. Wells. And so, on Tuesday, November the 6th, after just five hours of deliberations, the jury returned with a unanimous verdict, finding Wells Sr. guilty of the murder of Kenneth O'Brien. He showed no emotion as the verdict was delivered, and he was sentenced to life in prison. In his victim impact statement, Kenneth's father, Jerry O'Brien, told how the Ken that had emerged during the trial was not the Ken that they knew and loved. His murder and the subsequent desecration of his body was barbaric and, he continued, quote, an affront to all who knew him. Family members wept as Jerry declared that there were no words to describe the trauma and desolation they had felt since Ken's murder. Mr. O'Brien said that Kenneth was a lovely child to rear and a hard worker from the age of 15. He'd found it difficult to express himself, but the family always knew what Ken meant. It was hard to sum up his life in a couple of pages, Jerry said. Concluding his statement, Mr. O'Brien told the court that there was a cold place in his heart, and that cold place would be with him forevermore. A second victim impact statement, written by Emer Dunn, was read to the court by Garda Anya O'Sullivan of the National Bureau of Criminal Investigation. Ms Dunn said that she could not put into words the feelings she had experienced after finding out that Kenneth was murdered in the most gruesome of ways. Quote, No mother should have to do what I had to do in telling our beautiful boy that his idol, his father, was never coming home. She said she would do everything in her power to make sure that Kenneth's memory was kept alive and that their son would remember all the good things about his dad. As he was led out of the courtroom, Wells Sr. looked directly at Ms. Dunn and said, I'm sorry. But the conclusion of Paul Wells Sr.'s trial was not the end of legal proceedings in relation to the death of Kenneth O'Brien. In November of 2019, Paul Wells Jr. went on trial in the Central Criminal Court, charged with impeding the apprehension or prosecution of his father. Wells Jr., who at the time had an address in Selbridge, County Kildare, pleaded not guilty to disposing of a chainsaw motor, blade and chain over the course of two days in January of 2016. The prosecution's case was that Wells Jr. had disposed of the tools knowing that his father had taken a life. Wells Jr. denied this, insisting that at the time he'd had no idea the chainsaw had been used to dismember Kenneth O'Brien. The trial heard how Wells Jr. had endured a life of hardship under his father, who was described as a very violent man. Evidence was offered indicating that Wells Jr. had suffered regular physical abuse at the hands of his father from a young age, and that the family environment was volatile and characterised by an extremely toxic dynamic, with Wells Sr. being the driving force. Wells Jr.'s younger brother, Jerry, testified that their father had tried to persuade the defendant to join the IRA and carry explosives in the past, and it also emerged that Wells Sr. also made threats from prison on Wells Jr.'s life, saying if he didn't put a bullet in his own son, then the IRA would. The court also heard from Garda witnesses, who gave evidence that Wells Jr. had received €11,000 in the aftermath of the chainsaw disposal but Wells denied that this was payment for helping his father conceal the brutal and bloody murder. Instead, he claimed the money was to be used to look after his mother. The three-week trial featured many of the same witnesses who testified during the murder trial of Paul Wells Sr. and, once again, Kenneth O'Brien's family had to recount and listen to the harrowing details of Kenneth's murder. When the hearing of evidence in the trial concluded, the jury deliberations began. They spent just under four hours behind closed doors before returning with unanimous guilty verdicts on both counts. 
Paul Wells Jr. appeared at a sentencing hearing in February of 2020. There, Wells Jr.'s sister, Amy, spoke on his behalf and on behalf of their wider family. Amy apologised to the O'Brien and Dunn families for the distress caused to them by Wells Jr. not coming forward sooner. However, Kenneth O'Brien's father told the court that Wells Jr.'s inaction in coming forward had resulted in the atrocious circumstances that Wells Sr. was free to attend Kenneth's funeral. Mr. O'Brien told the judge, quote, There are no words to describe how we feel about this. Wells Jr.'s defence barrister, Damien Colgan, senior counsel, asked the trial judge, Ms. Justice Carmel Stewart, for a suspended sentence and said that a term of imprisonment should be a last resort. He cited his client's lack of previous convictions, Wells Jr.'s exposure to violence from an early age, and his willingness to help Gardee with their investigation. But despite these mitigating factors, on February 17, 2020, Wells Jr. was sentenced to three years in prison, with the last 18 months suspended. Ms. Justice Stewart commented that she had given serious consideration to handing down a fully suspended sentence, but she did not think it would reflect the gravity of the offence. In a case filled with twists and turns, questions remain to this day about the true motive for the murder of Kenneth O'Brien. However, regardless of the true reason behind the killing, jurors were still left with a victim who was shot in the back of the head at point-blank range. And that, they determined, was enough to satisfy the criteria for murder. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Aaron, Rona MacDonald and Lisa Zia. Please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This week's episode was researched and written by the amazing Eileen Spearin. Additional writing and production was by me, your host, Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Similarly, similar, similarly, similar, similarly, 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 similarly. Similarly, defense counsel, similarly, defense counsel, in the same vein, 